The first section of Isaiah that Nephi wanted us to grapple with has come to an end, okay? Uh, Isaiah 2, 3, 4, 5, all one chapter in Nephi's writing. It's come together now and he's going to make the pivot to the second part. The first part let us know how we got into this mess. The second part is going to start moving us into how we're going to get out of it and it revolves around a righteous remnant. That's what we're going to be looking for. How do we preserve amidst all of this wickedness, all of these woes, all this worldliness and sins of, of omission at the expense of the poor, all of our seeking for military might and laying up horses and chariots, all our seeking of worldly wealth and our laying up of gold and treasures, grinding and beating the poor all along the way? Oh, no. There's going to be... Forget all that. That will be... I mean, while we're winnowing grain, that's going to be scattered to the wind. But there will be some kernels that remain on the threshing floor. There will be a righteous remnant around which I can collect a kingdom. It will be this group of the stalwart, the faithful, the unshaken, that God will perform a marvelous work and a wonder to gather the rest of the family back home into the covenant, into the tabernacle, the covert from storm and from rain, to start that upward flow back to the mountain of the Lord's house. That's everything that Nephi is been, has been banking on. Remember, this is personal to him. He's part of this branch that's been cut off from the old world Israel. And he's growing in a new land. But will God remember us on the isles of the sea? Will he bring us back? If so, how will he do it? Ah, through a righteous remnant, which reminds him of Isaiah. You see, Nephi has seen so much already in his apocalyptic visions back in 1 Nephi 11, 12, 13, 14. He's walked us through some of that in 1 Nephi 22 with the help of Isaiah. He weaves together his father's two trees, the olive tree with its broken branches, and the tree of life with its extending rods of iron to bring us all back home to the love of God. Well, here he's going to do more of that with the help of Isaiah. He's going to pick up right where he left off. He's walked us through Isaiah 2, 3, 4, 5, and in 6, now we start to see the solution, the calling of a prophet. Chapter 16 of 2 Nephi, or 6 of Isaiah, Notice how it unfolds. Verse 1, 2, 3. In the year that King Uzziah died, and that's an interesting moment in Israelite history, because King Uzziah presided over a period of relative peace, but it was peace that came at the expense of the poor. Uh, he was amassing his armies. He was enriching his kingdom, but at horrible expense of his own people. Now, that king is dead. And what would you expect to see? Well, a new king take his place. Ah, and yes, that's what happens. But what kind of a king will we see? No earthly sovereign yet. A heavenly one instead. You see, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. His train filled the temple. And that train, picture his robes of righteousness. Picture the hem of his garment and every woman with an issue of blood will be able to be healed by the touch. 
Anyone who needs to be gathered in and covered by the wings of the mother hen, this temple is filled with that train. Are you with me? We are now seeing the heavenly throne room, just like we saw back in Revelation chapter 4 at the end of our New Testament study last year. And, and we're seeing it right there. In some ways, Isaiah's like, whoa, 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 what, what am I doing here? I'm, I'm in no position to see the king of kings. Well, you need a new king, Israel. Your last one died, and in some ways, good riddance. He enriched you, but at the expense of your, of your better selves. Will you turn to the real king now? Forget the earthly throne. Come to the heavenly throne room, and sitting upon it is this king of kings, lord of lords. In verse 2, above it, above the throne, stood the seraphim. And seraphim simply means the burning ones. Again, we saw the, the beasts that surrounded the throne of God back in Revelation 4. Well, here you have these burning cleansing, purifying beings surrounding the throne of God. And each one had six wings. With twain, with two that is, he covered his face. With twain he covered his feet. And with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Oh, I do picture a Revelation 4 or even a Revelation 5 kind of context here. It's glorious. We're seeing God. In some ways, this is the, the central climax of all these Isaiah chapters that Nephi is giving us. Uh, it's an apex moment because the Lord himself is there. Okay? We're seeing this. This is the Lord that Nephi saw, that Jacob saw, that Isaiah saw, and this is where Isaiah is seeing him. He's witnesses. But also notice the beings that are already there. They're holy. They have been through the refiner's fire, and they're still burning with that brilliance. Their six wings, remember when, when we studied Revelation, and the wings can represent the power to move and the act, that there's agency for you? I can go anywhere. And with six wings, two, th three pairs, I can go left and right with one, or forward and back with another, or up and down with another. It's, I'm completely three-dimensional agency here. I can go anywhere I want with six wings. But what is this? What are these heavenly beings doing with theirs? What are they exercising their agency to, to accomplish? Well, only one pair of wings are they using to go. And I'm sure they're going at the Lord's command, wherever he sends them. The other pairs, with one pair he covers the, the head, the face. The other he covers the feet. And this is interesting. On the one hand, it could be dual symbols for humility. I just, I'm not worthy to look in the, at the eyes of God, and so I'm just going to humbly cover myself. My feet also, if that's what the Lord washes in the Last Supper, I want to cover those feet that no, no unclean thing could be in his presence. Then again, and this you've got to be a little sensitive about, the feet in ancient Israel could also be a euphemism for the private parts. And so in some ways, what else might this represent? Anything that I would be ashamed of, I am covering from the all-seeing eye of God. My proud head is bowing before him, and I am covering my nakedness before him. In some ways, if you were to think about this in temple terms, picture 
wearing a veil, there's two wings over the head, and wearing an apron, there's two wings over the private parts. And with these other wings, I'm choosing to come before God, to surround His throne, which, remember, it was the Ark of the Covenant, the, the mercy seat where God sat, which God sat upon. And so here we are in His presence, and, and you picture Isaiah, what am I doing here? What is going on? In fact, he says in verse 5, Woe is unto me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Can you picture how inadequate he feels to be in the presence of God? Remember Roni's beautiful words in Ether 12? If men will come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. Well, Isaiah's is crystal clear here. I, even this man of such incredible eloquence, my lips are unclean. I may speak with the tongue of men, but I cannot yet speak with the tongue of angels. What am I doing here? I'm surrounded by wicked people. They certainly can't come in, but as one of their representatives, what am I doing here? And in that moment of self-reflection, then flew one of the seraphim unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Oh, there's God's purifying fire. No wonder he's surrounded by burning ones, seraphim. He's taken a coal, a live, burning, white-hot coal, from off the altar. Which one? It could be the altar of sacrifice that Isaiah would have passed on his way into the tabernacle, into the temple. And that's great symbolism. The sacrifice for sin that cleanses us. Take one of those burning embers and purge the wickedness of your own lips. Then again, even closer to the throne room, the Holy of Holies, where God dwells, is the holy place with its menorah, its candle stand, with its bread of its table of showbread, and its altar of incense. The last thing you pass before you part the veil and enter the presence of God. And it's that altar the incense that fills the house of God with its sweet savor. I mean, if the throne room is filled with, the, with God's train, His robes of righteousness, picture on the Day of Atonement when the great high priest is able to enter the presence of God. Only one day a year that's allowed, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, Kippur to cover, when everything's covered, when the mercy seat is covering the Ark of the Covenant, and God Himself is covering the throne of grace. Oh, there's Day of Atonement for you. And on that day, and only that day, the high priest can come in. He will take burning coals from the altar of incense and enter the Holy of Holies, so that those prayers of the saints, remember that's what the, the, in the smoke of the incense altar represents. Those prayers ascending can, to heaven, 
not only fill the holy place, but now seep into and fill the holy of holies. It's our prayer that parts the veil and allows us entrance into the presence of God. These heavenly beings, veiled and aproned, lifting prayers to heaven before passing through the veil to enter God's presence. Every day is the Day of Atonement. The veil's been torn in half by the crucifixion of Christ. Come boldly to the throne of grace, as Paul invites the Hebrews. You understand all of this? The symbolism is so rich and so revealing to the righteous remnant who know how to gain access to the presence of God. Are we undone by the invitation to enter? Do we wonder how we could possibly be made so clean? Do we feel like we don't fit in the presence of true burning ones? Oh, but to come? To be drawn in by a pull that is stronger than gravity? So we flow uphill to the mountain of the Lord's house? In some ways, chapter 6, after, God, after waiting through so much difficulty in 2 and 3 and 4, by the time we get to Isaiah 6, we deserve, we need a reminder of where this all started. The mountain of the Lord's house. Come. It's a day of atonement for you. And God will purge us, purify us from the very altar that we've been invoking as we call upon the name of God. This is a profound moment in Isaiah's own ministry, but also in the story he is teaching to the rest of us about how God is going to begin to solve our problems and bring about this great and marvelous work. He's going to call prophets and cleanse them so that they can do his mighty work. You see in verse 8, also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Is this ringing any bells? All of a sudden, we are reenacting premortality, where God asked that exact question, Whom shall I send? And Isaiah's response? <laughs> Again, it echoes Jehovah's. Here am I, send me. Isaiah is following the Lord's example. He's playing his part in the plan. How's this for a noble and great one? Accepting his mission call to come to earth, to turn things around for God's covenant people. But notice how he's going to do it. This next verse is, is really hard to wrestle with. God said, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but they understood not. And see ye indeed, but they perceived not. You see, the action isn't enough. It's the effect that really matters. And yeah, you've got eyes, but you're not using them. You've got ears, but you're plugging them. You don't get it. So is, Isaiah, go out and tell the people that. Your, your vision is blurred. Your, your ears have become deaf. You're not paying attention. And then this next line that's the strangest of them all. Make the heart of this people fat. And make their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and be converted and be healed. 
Now, there's some interesting rhyme schemes there, right? We're talking three different part, body parts and a beautiful triplet. Eyes that are meant to see, but don't. Ears that are meant to hear, but don't. Hearts that are meant to understand, but refuse to. Followed by a couplet that's an interesting parallel. Be converted and be healed. Hmm, conversion is healing. Change is redemptive. Coming unto Christ is what cleanses and heals us all. But are we willing to do that? Now, if you were to compare... By the way, there's an amazing book. It's incredible. It's called The Vision of All. It's by a great good friend and colleague of mine, Joseph Spencer. And, and Dr. Spencer has... Joe, as we call him has paid such a price to make sense of Isaiah in the Book of Mormon. Uh, this is an old book of his, and he's written, I think, three now on Isaiah in the Book of Mormon. Uh, there was another one uh, that he wrote years ago called Another Testament. And then more recently was another one just published, I think last year, uh, that is another masterpiece on Isaiah and the Book of Mormon that goes through Abinadi and Jesus and everything. But the vision of all is the one that takes closest aim at Isaiah in First and Second Nephi. And he really wrestles with this passage because it's so tricky. Uh, he brings in the, the original printer's manuscript uh, for the Book of Mormon to see, well, did we get it right in terms of what we have in our modern edition of the Book of Mormon? He turns to a bunch of other... Hebrew scholars and how they've translated Isaiah uh, from the Old Testament, the difference between the Old Testament version and the brass plates version we have here, it, it's, a, it's a long wrestle that Joe takes us through. It's beautiful. But in it, it's that struggle of what's God telling to Isaiah here? Is he, is he describing the current status, which is woeful, or is he commanding Isaiah to do something or is it some weird combination of the two? In the previous verse, the Book of Mormon clarifies some things that the King James doesn't, or even the, the, the Hebrew, other translations don't do either. Because there is this sense of you hear, but you don't understand. Okay, that's the problem. Uh, but the next verse, even the Book of Mormon doesn't clarify it very well. Uh, at least, I should put it this way, it doesn't make us feel better about what we're seeing on the page. Because it looks like a straightforward command to Isaiah, make the heart fat, make the ear heavy, shut their eyes. And you can picture going, wait, what? No, no, no. Surely this is simply, this isn't an imperative. This is simply a description. What's going on here is people have fat hearts and closed eyes and, and shut ears. And Isaiah, you're going to have to do something about that. Okay, that feels better. But is that true to the text? Or is God really saying to Isaiah, yep, go ahead and make their hearts fat and close their eyes and close their ears, which seems completely against what any prophet would normally want to do. Well, one of the things that we need to wrestle with this is what's going to cause that? And is it Isaiah being told to do it or the people that are just coming to do that themselves? Or, like I said, some interesting combination of the two. That's where I come down on it. Because the text is pretty straightforward. This is what you're going to do. You're going to end up making the people's hearts worse than ever and their eyes more closed than ever. And you're going to plug their ears and so on. And it's like, that, that doesn't seem right. But then again, if they already have closed eyes and shut ears and 
hard hearts, what's Isaiah going to do about it? The irony is he does some amazing good with the help of, alongside King Hezekiah, later on in the book of Isaiah. But what's going on here to this point, oh, the people, mm, there's, not, there's not a lot of good news in the immediate future for Israel or for Judah. And the irony, though, is what is God's ultimate goal? He plays the long game. He's eternal, so he can afford to, right? And in some ways, he can honor the agency of his immediate audience and realize, you guys are going to hell in a handbasket. You are going to pot right before my eyes. But my goal is to have a righteous remnant. And as long as I can have a righteous remnant, there's a little bit of yeast that I can, that leaven that I can use to leaven the lump. I just to have, I need to have some survivors of all of this and some kind of core group that I can then use to start gathering the rest of the family home. And again, if this has to do with a marvelous work and a wonder, oh, that's going to be latter days where that happens anyway. So imagine it being something along these lines. Isaiah, every time you open your mouth, you tick people off <laughs> because you're preaching and they get angry. They don't want to change. We see that repeatedly. You're crying repentance, and it just makes them more and more angry because you're calling them out for their sins. You've made it crystal clear that God knows what's on the inside. He's turning you inside out. And nobody wants to be called out like that. So, what are you going to do? Remember when Jeremiah was facing so much opposition and he threw away his missionary tag? He didn't want to talk anymore. He said, I'll forget it. I just get, keep getting persecuted. And then he couldn't help himself. I've got to keep teaching the gospel. Well, Isaiah had some fire in the bones too. But in some ways, God is making sure that that fire keeps on spreading. So think of it in these terms. I know that what you're teaching your immediate audience will not have much of an effect at all because you speak, but they refuse to hear. They hear, but they don't listen. They see, but they don't perceive. Okay, that's a problem. It's not going to change in the, in the immediate future. But it will change in the ultimate future. But they still need words to listen to. And they need to be yours, Isaiah. I can't afford to simply wait for some later prophet to speak to some later audience and it all works. No, there's something about the way you write, Isaiah. Something, away, something about your persuasive power, the gifts I've given you, will make a huge change, but only in a later day. A later day like Nephi's or a latter day like ours. So here's what I need you to do. Keep writing. Keep speaking. Keep preaching. In fact, writing is a big one because in Israelite history, this is really where prophets start to write more than ever. And that changes some things as well. Because it makes words more permanent. It allows them to outlive their initial enunciation. Okay, it allows them to speak to other audiences later down the road. And so Isaiah, here's what I need you to do. Go ahead and tick off your immediate audience. Make their eyes more closed than ever and have them plug their ears because you're going to keep yelling at them. Okay, go ahead and make their hearts harder than ever because they're already hard to the point that I'm going to have to break them. 
but your words have to be preserved. So write them down and bind them up and save them for a day where people will actually listen. Nephi will listen. Joseph Smith will listen. Russell M. Nelson will listen. Latter-day prophets will be reminded about your promises of gathering Israel, and that's what they'll do. Joseph Smith dwelt on this at length, and no prophet since him has talked more about it than Russell M. Nelson in our day. Okay? It's as if Isaiah... Picture it in this way. Picture some old wise, some wise old man with the wisdom of the ages wanting to teach his people, but they won't listen. But he knows they will outlive him. Which means if it's just verbal, then their wickedness will outlive his words. What am I going to do? Maybe someday, picture maybe my kids won't listen, but maybe my grandkids will. Let's keep this personal so it doesn't take 2,000 years to accomplish. But if, if I'm dying and my children will not listen, but I'm going to gather the family together for a family home evening and I'm going to tell it to them anyway, even though it ticks them off, even though it gets them angry. It might even push them further away because I'm not backing down. I'm not sugarcoating this. But if I can at least say it and record it, then someday my grandkids will have my words and they'll listen. Even if it pushes my children further away, it will bring my ch grandchildren ever closer. And that's what Isaiah is banking on. In fact, that's what God is banking on with Isaiah. Does that make sense? So preach it, teach it, write it with all your beautiful imagery and incredible poetry. Give it your best shot even if it has a negative effect in the short term, it will have a wondrously redemptive effect in the long term. Because some days eyes will open, and ears will open, and hearts will soften, and everything will change. In fact, take those three body parts in the triplet that Isaiah gives us, and listen to this from the very first words of the Doctrine and Covenants. The opening sentences of the preface. This is what God wants to say once he gets unmuzzled after 1,800 years of apostasy, he says in Doctrine and Covenants 1, verse 1 and 2, Hearken, O ye people of my church. So listen up. Sayeth the voice of him who dwells on high. How's that for the throne room where Isaiah got to be ushered in? Whose eyes are upon all men. Yea, verily I say, hearken, ye people from afar, ye that are upon the islands of the sea. And that's Isaiah talking. That's Jacob and Nephi talking. Isles of the sea, listen together. For verily the voice of the Lord is unto all men, and there is none to escape. There is no eye that shall not see, neither ear that shall not hear, neither heart that shall not be penetrated. Same triplet. Same three target body parts. And though the eyes, ears, and hearts of your own people will be worse than ever because of your words, Isaiah, in a latter day, and even in a later day, Nephi's, Jacob's, people will have ears to, to hear, eyes to see, hearts to understand, so they can be converted so I can heal them. Okay? So write it down, Isaiah. I'm so glad he did.
Now, from Isaiah's perspective, he does still have a question. I think it's starting to make sense for him, but he's wondering, is it later or latter, and how much later? Because he asks in verse 11, Lord, how long? In other words, how long does it have to be this way? How long till Israel turns things around? How long till my words will be seen for what they are? And the Lord's answer? Well, until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate, and the Lord have removed men far away, for there shall be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. And that great forsaking could describe the scattering of Israel in Isaiah's day, the Babylonian captivity in Ezekiel and Daniel and Lehi's day, the scattering of a branch broken off to a new world in Nephi's day, splitting up the family, Nephites and Lamanites, in Nephi and Jacob's day, a great apostasy leading up to Joseph Smith's day. Oh, it's great forsakings left and right. That's how long your words will be wasted on a willfully deaf audience, Isaiah. That's how long before things will turn around. But, he says in the last verse, but yet there shall be a tenth, and they shall return. There's the righteous remnant that remains. It's not going to be completely gone. There will be, picture this little tithe, a tithe that the Lord reserves for himself, just a tenth. They'll be here. They'll return. Now, the rest of it is really hard in translation. It says, and shall be eaten as a teal tree and as an oak whose substance is in them when they cast their leaves. So the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. And yeah, there's all kinds of interesting translations that try to make sense of that one. It's a tricky passage. But the idea there is picture a tree, a teal tree, an oak, take what you will. And whether the leaves have been cast off, oh, it's just fall, no big deal. Winter will pass. The life remains within the tree, and spring will come with new growth. That, you get that sense with casting their leaves. But other translations, it's more, it's more bold than that. It's more stark, because it's the, the tree is cut down. It's more than just leaves. There's not even any branches. All you've got is this stump of the oak tree. Now, Isaiah loves to do dual images of things. Uh, and if you're talking about cedars of Lebanon or the oaks of Bashan that are cut down, oh, there's no more growth from that. But the interesting thing here is this oak, oh, there's still substance there. There's still life there. The holy seed shall be the substance thereof. Next week when we get to chapter 11 of Isaiah, or 21 of 2 Nephi, we'll see these stalks and stems growing out of the stump of ancient Israel. Mm, how's that for restoration growing out of apostasy? How's that for gathering growing out of scattering? It'll come in a later day. And here is that promise at the end. Isaiah, just be patient. Or at least <laughs> write something down so your words can be patient. Yeah, you will not outlive the wickedness of your people. There's going to be problems in your day. But this tenth will remain. The remnant shall return. There's life in this stump, so hold out for it. And with that promise, 
we're ready to get back to Isaiah's history. What's going on in his exact environment, his historical context. And in reality, it's interesting because this is a, a minor blip on the world radar. Uh, Assyria is no minor blip. When the Assyrians are coming, this is major and every history book's going to have that in it. Okay, But as Assyria is on the rise and as it's beginning to spread and take over the known world, Remember, this is the Fertile Crescent, and since it's a crescent and they're in Mesopotamia, they can't go straight across to take on Israel. They wouldn't even care anyway. What's the point of Israel? What they really want to take down is Egypt, because that's the other world superpower that has a major history behind it. And so Assyria's plan is, we've got to take down Egypt. But you can't go directly southwest to do it, because you'd be going through the Arabian Peninsula, and that's death by desert. So what do you do? Ah, the Fertile Crescent, you come up and around. You come up over the Arabian Peninsula, come in through Asia Minor, then come down the Mediterranean coast on your way to Egypt. But what do you pass on your way? Ah, you're going from the north and you'll first hit the northern kingdoms, also known as the kingdom of Israel, sometimes simply referred to by its, the name of its principal tribe, Ephraim, sometimes called by its capital city, Samaria. But we're going to destroy that first, and then we'll hit the southern kingdom next. And that's the kingdom of Judah, or its capital city, Jerusalem. Then, once we beat them, we can keep going south and eventually wipe out Egypt. You with me on the, on the geography and the history? Remember, Nephi said part of his keys were to know the lands roundabout and to know the, the history, the kinds of judgments that were passed upon the Jews. Well, starting in 2 Nephi 17, Isaiah 7, you're going to start to see some judgment being passed. Because the Assyrians are on the rise, they're starting to make their move, everybody kind of knows they're on their way, and so all these little kingdoms in Palestine are quaking in their boots. To the point that they start wondering, uh, none of us are going to be big enough on our own to push back the Assyrians. What if we got together? And maybe some kind of an alliance. If we can get enough <laughs> wimps on our side, then maybe we can outnumber the bully that's on, it, on the way? I don't know. Can we do this? Enough ants and we can push back the grasshopper? Well, the northern kingdom and another kingdom to the north, namely the Syrians, not the Assyrians, but just Syria, they come together in, a, in a, a duo, and they're like, hey, misery loves company. The two of us, maybe we can take on the Assyrians. And then they're like, ah, two against the, the, the worst, the world superpower? No, we need at least a third. Judah, how about you guys? And that's the immediate context of what Isaiah is wrestling with. Because his own people are like, what do we do? We're all going to get destroyed. Um, do we want to stay on Assyria's side by not joining the alliance against them, and then, yeah, they'll come through and we'll have to pay massive tribute and all this kind of stuff, but at least we'll survive the onslaught. So should we kind of play nice with the Assyrians? Or should we join Israel and Syria against them in hopes that the three of us will be big enough to survive? Ooh, there's a gamble. Because if we don't, then we're dead, just like they are. What do we do? And that's exactly what's happening here. So start in verse 1 and 2 of 2 Nephi 17, Isaiah 7. And it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. See, some time has passed. Uzziah died at the beginning of chapter 6. But in this next chapter, you're now with King Ahaz. He's the king of Judah. And in those days, Rezin, king of Syria, 
And Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up toward Jerusalem to war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told the house of David, saying, Syria is confederate with Ephraim. And his heart was moved in the heart of his people, as the trees of the wood are moved with the wind. Now, what on earth is that all talking about? Well, in history, this is called the Syro-Ephraimite War. And it's this minor little skirmish where, or potential skirmish, where the Syrians and the Ephraimites, namely the Israelites, northern kingdom, ten tribes up there, they join together and they're pressuring Judah to join them. So everything I just explained, okay? And we've got names of the kings and so on, but King Ahaz is freaking out as well as all the other people. Are we doing the right thing? Or should we stay on a Syria side? Should we go join Syria and in Israel? What do we do? I love the language when it says his heart was moved, the heart of his people was moved, as the trees of the wood are moved with the wind. Have you ever seen a quaking aspen and realized why they call it a quaking aspen? You see, aspen trees, their leaves are two different shades of green, depending on which side of the leaf you're looking at. One side is a little bit darker, the other side is a little bit lighter. And when, when the wind blows and the, we, and the leaves kind of go back and forth, the two sides of them make it look like the tree itself is quaking because of the color change with each leaf. You understand what I'm saying? And you want to talk about a great visual image for someone that's quaking in his boots, someone who's scared to death. Is the, the, the palace from Ahaz on down, the, the kingdom of Judah in the south, is a quaking aspen. And they're all freaked out, like, what are we going to do? And you can't blame them. But then notice what God tells Isaiah to do. Verse 3, Then said the Lord unto Isaiah, Go forth now to meet Ahaz. So the prophet is called to be proactive. Go reassure the king. Don't wait for him to come to you. You go to him. Oh, and don't go alone. Thou and Sheir Yashub, thy son. And the name of this boy is everything here. Because Sheir Yashub means in Hebrew, a remnant shall return. <laughs> Isn't that perfect? Again, this was an inspired call. Can you picture uh, Sister Isaiah say, oh, what should we name him? And Isaiah's like, it's not our choice. Uh, God already let me know. His name has to be Sheir Yashub. And she's like, that's the weirdest name ever. A remnant shall return. It's like, well, it'll, it'll come in handy later. Sorry, my son, our son has to be a visual aid. So I'm going to bring, literally, a remnant shall return to the king that is wondering if that's even possible. Now, the king's at the end of the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the Fuller's Field. And talk about a great location for this conversation to take place. Because a fuller is someone who washes clothes. And so a fuller's field is a place where the dirty becomes clean. It was usually outside of town because oh, soap was stinky in those days. And so it, the smell of cleansing things was not pleasant. So they wanted to keep it out, outside of the city walls. And what's the king doing out there outside the city walls? Well, he's checking out the conduit of the upper pool. You see... The, the tragedy of the way Jerusalem was first designed is there was no water source inside the city walls. Yeah, somebody should have thought about that one. But outside the wall was this spring called the Gihon Spring, and that's the, there's this conduit that's going to bring the water down to an upper pool. Now, it's not going to be until uh, Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, who comes up with a brilliant idea that water 
outside the city, we better figure out a way to get it inside the city. Because if we're going to be laid siege by the Assyrians, then we can't go out there to get the water. It's got to come inside. And since we can't move the spring, hmm, can we... Can we bring a different kind of conduit into a different place for a pool? And somehow the water can flow from outside the wall, under the wall, and into the city? That's where you get the engineering marvel known as Hezekiah's Tunnel. There will be a pool inside the city wall called the Pool of Siloam. Jesus is going to do some healing there. And the Gihon Spring outside, and then there'll be a group of of diggers on either side and then, yeah, just find each other underground 700 years before Christ. How's that for lack of technology? Well, they pulled it off miraculously. And I've walked through Hezekiah's tunnel. It's a, it's a, it's a blast. But to, to see that this is a common concern among the kings, if we're under attack and especially under siege, what are we going to do with, where are we going to find living water? With me? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. So there's Ahaz out checking. He's outside the walls now. He's probably checking the fortifications. Uh, how will we stand up against uh, the Assyrians if we join Syria and Israel? Or how will we hold up against the Syrians and Israelites if we don't join them? Either way, we're about to get, get attacked. Will my walls hold? Will the water flow? What are we going to do? And in this moment of concern, desperation, fear on the part of the king and everyone on down, God says to Isaiah, go out and talk to him. Go out and reassure him that there may be bad news in the short term. There will be glorious news in the long term. And my son is standing here as exhibit A. Guess what I called him? So confident am I in God's promise. This is... Sheir Yashu, a remnant shall return. If you'll just place your faith in God, King Ahaz, it's going to be okay. No need to place your trust in the arm of flesh known as the Syrians or the Israelites. We're going to have to play nice with the Assyrians. That's rough. People aren't going to want to hear that. They want us to be strong enough to handle anything. They want a courageous king. They want a war hawk, not a peace dove. But we have to trust God, our God. Okay, so at least, a, at least a remnant will survive all this. Remember, God's project in this second chunk of Isaiah is to, how do we reduce the people down to a righteous remnant? In some ways, this is going back to Gideon in the book of Judges, where it's like, you've got way too big of an army for this. They're going to trust in the arm of flesh. So we're going to have to winnow out the army. First, get rid of anyone who's scared. And that was the vast majority. Okay, that's, they wouldn't help us much anyway. Then take them down to the river and see how they drink. And let's just get it down to 300. You want to talk, that's less than a tenth of what they started with. And this is the tenth that will remain. This is the remnant that will be righteous. And so we're going to, Assyria will be the Lord's tool to winnow us down. It will destroy the wicked until only the faithful remain. Ahaz, I'm asking you to be among that righteous remnant. I'm asking you to exercise faith in God and, and not faith in your, your neighbors. No, let's, let's hold on to this. Hold on to hope. You then see 
in verse 4 what Isaiah is supposed to say to him. Once you're out there with your son, say to King Ahaz, take heed and be quiet. In other words, listen up and shut up. And then, now that I have your attention, calm down. The way Isaiah says it, fear not, neither be faint-hearted. For the two tails of these smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezin with Syria and of the son of Remaliah. Now, the first part is easier to understand than the second, right? Be quiet, take heed, fear not, don't be faint-hearted, it's okay. But then the second part is how he's using, what he's saying to illustrate it. These two kingdoms that you're so afraid of offending by not joining them in an alliance, an ill-fated alliance against an enemy that cannot be beaten, because that enemy, the Assyrians, is what God is using to humble us, to cut down the cedars of Lebanon and the oaks of Bashan. We deserve this. We have to be humbled. We are not choosing to kneel, so we are going to be brought to our knees, and it's the Assyrians that God is going to use to do it. We've got to deal with that, king. But in order to do so, don't, don't be afraid of these minor kingdoms directly, above, directly to your north. They are going, they're going to be nothing but speed bumps for the Assyrian army. And we'd be the third of the three speed bumps. We would be decimated just like they will be. So don't go there. All those two minor kingdoms are, here's the language, are smoking firebrands. It's like a, a 4th of July sparkler. And it looks a little scary. I mean, remember when you were little or you'd, give a, you'd light a sparkler and give it to a little child and they were scared to death because it was like, I can't hold fire until they realize there, there's really no danger here. Remember what Isaiah said we quoted last time is these sparks? You got the light of the world and you're going to settle for a spark? Well, on the other side, why would you fear a spark that someone else is holding? That's all they've got. They're no light of the world. They're no devouring fire. They're a match that's already burned out and all you're seeing now is the smoke. The sparkler is about to cease sparkling. And so the smoking firebrand, why would you be worried about them? Can we stop the quaking, King Aspen? Now, verse 7, Thus saith the Lord God, It shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. In other words, the alliance isn't going to get you anywhere. That's the it. It shall not stand. The Syrians can't help you. The Israelites can't help you. Only the God of Israel can. You on his side? You want him on yours? You see, verse 10, let's make this even more clear. I brought exhibit A as my son, but you know there's yet another son on its way. So verse 10, moreover, the Lord spake again unto Ahaz, saying, Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either, either in the depths or in the heights above. It's like, go ahead. You're still worried? You want, you're a sign seeker. I know that about you. So go ahead. Ask me for one. Now, Ahaz says, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. Oh, is Ahaz passing the test? Or, more likely, is he just waving the white flag? Like, okay, I, I'm going to admit I don't have sufficient faith. Uh, I'm not going to ask a sign and add insult to injury. So, nope, forget it. But then, notice the Lord's response. He said, Hear ye now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will ye weary my God also? I mean, God sees right through it. It's like, no, you, you, you are a sign seeker. And fine, I'll even honor that. I'll give you one, even though now you're pretending like you don't need one. And here it is. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. 
And in words that are so famous in Christian ears, Behold, a virgin shall conceive, and shall bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And that name means God with us. Oh, that's just as good as Sheer Yashu. Maybe it's even better. Why will a remnant return? Because God is with us. He's trying to separate wheat from tares. He's trying to winnow away wheat from chaff. He's trying to get the good kernel. He's going to allow the tree to be chopped down, but oh, there's still life in those roots. And a later stem will eventually sprout. As proof, a virgin will conceive and bring forth a son. There's God with us. Now here's where we need to be careful. Because how on earth would that... Because we, I'll put it this way. As Christians, we see Jesus leap off the page. It's part of our spirit of prophecy, right? It's part of our testimony of Jesus and knowing the future and living in the last days and recognize, oh, I know what that is. Matthew helps us with that, by the way, because he quotes this verse when he's talking about Jesus and says, see, it's right there, plain as the nose on my face, right there in Isaiah. And while that's great for Matthew... He lived 700 years after Isaiah did. And while that's great for us, we live 2,700 years after Isaiah did. So how's that going to help King Ahaz? It's like, oh, I'm supposed to feel better about the Syrians and the Israelites and the Assyrians because Jesus is going to be born 700 years from now? How does that help me? Hmm. We're going to have to deal with layers on the layer cake then. Because you're right, in Matthew's day, that was a secondary layer. Uh, in our day, that's a, a third layer. In fact, maybe that's already third and fourth because Nephi is dealing with this as a secondary layer already. So for, for Nephi, he's like, okay, there's something about this son that will be born. There's something about this virgin that shall conceive. And dad talked about that. I, in fact, in my vision, I, I saw a virgin conceive. I mean, that was... Pictionary for condescension. I saw Christmas. So you could picture Nephi kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge over at Matthew. Like, yeah, I get it. I, I see what you're doing there. In impressive. But the irony here is in the original Hebrew, the word translated here as virgin simply means young woman. And yes, most young women at the time would have been virgins, so that's fine. It's not that Matthew's doing a disservice to it. But he's definitely making sure that the symbolism is obvious that he wants to convey, okay? He really wants us to focus on a higher layer of the layer cake. But the original layer, what is Isaiah saying in, to his immediate audience? What is Ahaz hearing that's actually going to make him feel better? Well, let's reread this and then move forward. There's going to be a young woman here in Jerusalem that's going to conceive and have a son. Okay? Now that's about as normal a life cycle as you can get. Uh, we're not all going to get wiped out to the point that it's a, a massacre and there's no survivors. No, there's going to be women having children. This is what Jesus talks about with the last days. That it's going to be crazy and chaotic, but people are still going to marry and be given in marriage. They're still going to have kids. There's, life will go on. Okay? So here, in our day, despite the fact you're scared of every potential army on its way, Life will go on. Mothers will have children. Okay? In fact, that will be evidence that God is still with us. 
I don't know if they're ever going to name somebody literally Emmanuel. I mean, that's, that's kind of a lofty title. But the fact that they'll have children and name children and raise children is evidence that God is still with us. It's okay. okay? Not even Mary named her son Emmanuel, though he's worthy of the title, right? But notice the next verse, and this is where it gets even more clear to its immediate audience. Verse 15, butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and to choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both her kings. The Lord shall bring upon thee and upon thy people and upon thy father's house days that have not come from the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Now, what on earth is that all about? Let me explain. At the end, days are coming, my friend. Assyria is coming. And it's going to be unlike anything you've ever seen. But you know what's going to happen? Assyria is going to destroy these immediate enemies. Assyria is going to take down Syria first on the way. Then he's going to take down Israel next to that. And then we're next in line. And guess what? He's not going to fully destroy us if we trust in God. And in fact, this is all going to happen so fast. So Nephi, before your time. Matthew, before your time. Latter days, before our time. What's going to end up happening is some woman in town is going to give, have a baby. And even before the baby is old enough to know the difference between right and wrong. So during these next few years of unaccountability, all this is going to come down. It's all going to happen. There's no more worry about... Syrians and Israelites, because Assyria has already taken care of both of those. And in fact, we'll even survive the Assyrian onslaught. Isaiah will make that clear when Hezekiah takes the throne a little bit later. Isaiah is going to be around for the whole thing. It's pretty cool. And for him, it's like, it's just a matter of time. Now, what's with the butter and honey thing? Well, here's part of the challenge there. Butter is when you have so much milk, you don't have to just drink it. You can churn it and make butter. Honey, it's like, man, you have the luxury of not just surviving on barley loaves, uh, scraping the bottom of the barrel. you got honeycomb and the sweet things of life. Butter and honey, that's, that's the stuff rich people eat, not the stuff the poor eats. Well, imagine what's going to happen with the depopulation that's taking place when the Assyrian Empire comes. Starts wiping things out. Uh, no more house next to house because it's desolate, right? But as a result, the righteous remnant, the people who are still here, they'll have plenty of food. Uh, they're not fighting with a bunch of other hungry mouths. They'll be able to eat butter and honey. It'll be so good for them. This is the righteous remnant that God is preserving. And, and it, it's going to be so soon if you'll just trust in God, hold down, hold out hope for that righteous remnant, you can be a part of them. Okay, It's only a couple years before this child that's going to end up be eating butter and honey is old enough to tell right from wrong. And by the time he does, guess what's going to teach him right from wrong? The exact consequences that I've been describing to you. Picture this child getting old enough to go, hey, mom, dad, I, it, it doesn't seem like we're rich. But how can we get to butter all of our toast and put honey on all of our cereal? Ah, I'm so glad you asked, son. Because you're old enough now to know the difference between right and wrong. 
And so many of the people that used to live here didn't t couldn't tell the difference. Or if they could, they ignored the right and went with the wrong. There used to be people all around that they were the ones that would skim all the honey off the top of the comb. They were the ones that would preserve the butter for themselves to the point that we didn't even have milk to drink. They would grind our faces in the ground and they're now gone. They couldn't tell right from wrong. They didn't care. They kept calling good evil and evil good and sweet was bitter and bitter was sweet. And no wonder honey is wasted on them. Or they're trying to honey coat everything to make it seem like it was palatable. But no, they're gone. And here we are as a tenth that remains. This place used to be populated. It isn't anymore. We got wide open spaces, son. And I hope you will learn the lesson from that now that you're old enough to be accountable. You understand what Isaiah is saying to Ahaz? This is fascinating material that Nephi really wants us to wrestle with. Will we be wise and discerning and tell good from evil when it's our turn? Well, from there, verse 18, it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall hiss. Ooh, there's some more whistling. For the fly that is in the uttermost part of Egypt. There's one world superpower on that, on, on that side of the kingdom. And for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. That's the world superpower on the other side of the kingdom. They're always, remember, the hard thing about ancient Israel is they're sandwiched between two bullies and they always get beat up during the fights, okay? But what God is going to do is going to whistle. He's going to hire some hired hands and summon them to bring his people to their senses. I need a fly from one side. I need a, a bee from the other because, man, they're going to sting Israel into a sense of their own wickedness. I'm trying to wake them up, okay? They shall come and shall rest all of them in the desolate valleys, because that's all that's going to be left, in the holes of the rocks, upon all thorns, upon all bushes. In the same day shall the Lord shave with a razor that is hired by them beyond the river, by the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it shall also consume the beard. Now remember, hair in the ancient world is a symbol of power. Think Samson, think Absalom, think Elisha, go up thou bald head. And not only the hair of the head, but the hair of the feet. And remember, feet might be literal feet. Now you're thinking like hobbits with hair on their feet. Or it could be a euphemism for private parts. And so you're shaving that. You are completely divesting a man of his manhood. The beard also, because if you shave the beard, it's as if you're not old enough to grow one. I mean, there's the beauty of No Shave November, is it separates those who can grow a beard from those who can't, right? And is it, is it taken as a slight of your manhood if you can't really grow a beard? Well, what is God doing? He keeps warning us throughout these Isaiah chapters, the proud will be brought down. I'm cutting down trees. I'm turning daughters of Zion inside out. I'm taking manly men who think they're strong enough to handle everything on their own, and I am reducing them to prepubescent boyhood. No hair anywhere. And who's he going to 
Well, who's he going to use to shave them? The Assyrians. That's my hired razor. You see, Isaiah is using multiple images here, as he always does. On the one hand, these are going to be, oh, pests. These are going to be bees and, and flies, and they're going to come in just to, to bother you, to try to wake you up. At the same time, Assyria itself is going to come in and reduce you to nothingness. Oh, it's going to humble you. It's going to humiliate you, in fact. But again, a remnant shall remain. God is trying to reduce it to a, an army he can actually trust in. Then, verse 21, it shall come to pass in that day, a man shall nourish a young cow and two sheep. And it shall come to pass for the abundance of milk they shall give, he shall eat butter. For butter and honey shall everyone eat that is left in the land. That's what he hinted at earlier in the chapter, right? The land's been depopulated by the Assyrian army. But those who survive it, the, the remnant that remains, will have plenty of space, plenty of food to eat. They'll know the difference between good and evil. They'll be raised on the law of the harvest. And they'll know what to sow based on what they want to reap. It's interesting because in some ways, I've talked before, in our Old Testament year, I kept using the, the phrase, wander, wander, die, wander, die. And that was to represent the generation of Israelites that stayed in the wilderness for 40 years so that God could cleanse the people of that wicked generation, the murmurers, and allow a rising generation to be raised with that and realize, I don't want to be quite like mom and dad. I want to have more faith than that, be more righteous than that. I don't want to wander, wander, die, wander, die. I want to cross the Jordan and conquer the promised land. And in a way, that's what's happening here. It's a second exodus, after all. It's a second redemption out of bondage, gathering out of scattering. So if it requires a generation to be, to be winnowed out, wander, die, wander, die, then the next generation will know how to live. Butter and honey. Sweeter things. Having learned from the bitter, I will prize the good. Someday we'll have a generation that does that. No wonder Matthew quoted it. He wanted it to be his generation. He was sick of Rome. No wonder we're wrestling with this in our day. Are we sick of the wicked world? No wonder Nephi is quoting it for his people. Do you really want to go with the Lamanites? Or will you stay faithful to the God of Israel and come unto him? Isaiah then ends this chapter, 23 to 25. It shall come to pass in that day, after the desolation that the Assyrians will bring, every place shall be where there were a thousand vines at a thousand silverlings, or as other translations have it, there were a thousand vines worth a thousand pieces of silver. I mean, this is an incredibly productive land. That's how the Lord's vineyard was supposed to be, right? Hedged and fenced and, and stones brought out and a tower and a, and a wine press and the choicest vine in the best possible location. Man, we're talking thousand silverlings for the thousand vines. But what is it now? What's it been reduced to? It shall be for briars and thorns. Again, we've been expelled from Eden and here we are languishing in the wasted world. 
Isaiah goes on, with arrows and with bows shall men come thither, because all the land shall become briars and thorns. I mean, imagine, there's no more agriculture going on. All the agricultural workers have been wiped away. The land itself has devolved into, I mean, it's gone to seed. It's now infested with wild animals. It's only good for hunting, no longer harvesting. Isaiah says that all hills that shall be digged with a mattock, Think about the kind of step farming that you do on hills to kind of, instead of a, a gradual slope, you keep making steps so you have flat places to plant crops on. So all those hills that were digged with a mattock, there shall not come thither the fear of briars and thorns. Or as other translations put it, out of fear of briars and thorns, you'll no longer go to plant or harvest on those hillsides. What's it left then? It shall be for the sending forth of oxen, and the treading of lesser cattle. Oh, some sheep, some goats. That's all that the land is left for. It's now uncultivated. It's uncared for. Oh, what used to be so productive, thriving, is now just grazing land for wild animals or maybe some sheep and goats that the survivors have. Are you getting a sense of the depopulation that would be left in Israel? But how do we describe the population that's left? Oh, they're learning from the mistakes of those all around them. With that, chapter 18 of 2 Nephi, or chapter 8 of Isaiah begins, and it's going to ask the question, now that you've been through all this, King Ahaz, if you're wise enough to listen, uh, people of Judah, if you're smart enough to pay heed, the real question is, where will you turn? Are you going to turn to the Syrians and the Israelites? Or are you going to turn to the God of Israel? He says in verse 1, Moreover, the word of the Lord said unto me, Take thee a great roll. And you picture a scroll here, like the stuff Scripture is written on. So in some ways, take this as seriously as you would Scripture. And write in it with a man's pen. I mean, be confident enough to record this for everyone to see. And write concerning Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And you're like, what? What am I? Oh, I'm going to need a man's pen for this. How do I even spell that? Well, Isaiah got it. It says, I took unto me faithful witnesses to record. Uriah the priest, Zechariah the son of Jeberachiah. I mean, he wants the world to know this. I'm going to write it. I'm going to put it on the scroll. I'm going to bring faithful witnesses to notarize this and make sure everyone is crystal clear on how confident I am about everything I've been saying. Okay? Now, what does this have to do with Mahershalal Hashbaz? You'll see. Keep reading. I went unto the prophetess. In other words, he went into his wife. And she conceived and bare a son. Then said the Lord to me, call his name. Your wife's not going to like this. Maher Shalal Hashbaz. For behold, the child shall not have knowledge to cry, my father and my mother, before the riches of Damascus, that's the capital of Syria, and the spoil of Samaria, that's the capital of Israel, shall be taken away before the king of Assyria. Now, it's all starting to come together here. Chapter 8 is going to make better sense of what we saw in chapter 7, that a virgin will conceive and give us... And and give birth to a son that you'll call Emmanuel. Or to be more literal instead of symbolic. Your own wife is going to give birth to a boy that you'll be told to name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. I know that's a far cry from Emmanuel. 
But before that kid grows up and is able to tell the difference between right and wrong, even before he's able to say words like dada, mama, let alone his crazy first name, <laughs> this will all be behind us. Damascus, Samaria, Syria, Israel, it's all going to be laid low at the feet of the Assyrian Empire. Remember, this is all happening really fast, King Ahaz. You don't have to be a quaking aspen. Just trust God. Okay? We're starting to see the, the initial layer of the layer cake and the immediate context and its fulfillment. Now, why call him Ahershal Hashbaz when, in reality, the symbol here is Emmanuel? What Mahershalal Hashbaz means, swift to the spoil, or uh, hasten the prey. Another way to say this is destruction is imminent. It's knocking on your door. They're come rushing in to spoil you. You are the prey, and they're the predator, and they're right about to pounce. <laughs> there have been times when my kids were little, and they were doing something naughty. Sometimes I just look at them and say, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. <laughs> They'd look at me like, what on earth are you talking about, Dad? I'm like, ah, someday you'll understand when you read Isaiah. That destruction is imminent. That you, you're... My dad used to say, you're cruising for a bruising. Okay? Thankfully, he wasn't the physically violent type. We never got bruised by anything. But cruising for a bruising was a warning that, like, you're on the path to your own self-destruction. Or at least you're going to get grounded or face some kind of punishment. And Isaiah's version of your cruising for a bruising was Maher Shalal Hashbaz. We've got an interesting family, don't we? We've got a remnant shall return. There's the good news. We've got destruction is imminent. There's the bad news. And how are we going to choose between the two? Well, if we trust Emmanuel, if we trust that God is with us, then we'll follow him. We'll trust in him. We won't put our trust in the arm of flesh. And though destruction is imminent, a remnant shall return. And I can bank on that because God's going to remain with the remnant that remains with him. He's whittling down the army. But this is one oh, that will obey every word of command with exactness and will do anything the Lord sends them in to do. That's what we're trying to create here with Isaiah's help, even with words that will offend the offendable. Oh, it will reach the hearts of the faithful. Just you wait. It reached Isaiah's, excuse me, it reached Nephi's heart. It reached Jacob's heart. It reached Joseph Smith's heart. It reached Russell M. Nelson's heart. I pray it's reaching ours. You with me? From there, look at verse 5 through 8. The Lord spake also unto me again, saying, For as much as this people refuseth the waters of Shiloh, that go softly, and rejoice in Rezin and Remaliah's son, those are the kings of Syria and Israel. Now therefore, behold, the Lord bringeth up upon them the waters of the river, strong and mighty, even the king of Assyria and all his glory. He shall come up over all his channels. He'll go over all his banks and he shall pass through Judah. He shall overflow and go over. He shall reach even to the neck and the stretching out of his wings shall fill the breadth of thy land, O Emmanuel. Who another packed passage. Well, let's unpack it. Isaiah is exhausting his inventory of imagery. He's pulling out all the stops. He's already described Assyria as 
a bee that's going to come in and sting you. He's described Assyria as a razor that's going to come in and shave you down to infantilism. He's, going to, he's now describing Assyria as a river and a flooding one. I mean, they come from Mesopotamia, after all, the land of the two rivers. Uh, and it's going to come. You ever lived through a flood? We lived through one in Tennessee that was intense. And the Cumberland River just spilled out over its banks and destroyed all kinds of things. Even in our neighborhood, uh, there was kind of a, a re re retaining pond in some ways, just kind of this big open area, just in case of floods. And it filled and overflowed. And I mean, I remember my, our, our house was a little higher, maybe a foot or two above, a little bit of a hill rise compared to our neighbors. And the water was getting dangerously close to their foundation. And we're all just kind of holding our breath. Well, imagine holding your breath because the river has gotten higher and higher and deeper and deeper until it, you're, it's up to your neck. And you're just kind of craning your neck to keep your nostrils, yeah, those nostrils that can't even close, those nostrils above the water level. And that's Assyria. It's coming. And the irony of this image is what he said at the beginning of that passage. You refused the waters of Shiloh that go softly. Remember Ahaz was out checking out the conduit. He was trying to see the little Gihon spring. Is it still bubbling up? Is there a way we could somehow get its water inside the walls? I don't know. It just, it flows so softly. Well, Shiloh, Shiloh was the name of the place where the original tabernacle was set up in Israel. Uh, the pool of Siloam is what they'll call it when they finally are able to get that water into the city walls and it's gentle just a babbling brook just a little spring from outside the city walls and you wouldn't trust in that still small voice you wouldn't trust in the gentle promises of living water well if that's the case you want stronger, more obvious water than that? Then prepare yourself, it's going to come. You will be overwhelmed with the flood because Assyria is coming to drown you in the consequences of your own sins. You understand? It's going to drown Syria and, and Israel before it gets to you. But even because of the wickedness of our own people, falling prey to the pride of the world, caring too much about worldliness and materialism, grinding upon the, pa the faces of the poor, well, they're going to ab about to be drowned in the floods of self-destruction. It would have been so much easier to trust in living water. Well, that's what differentiates the remnant. They do. They understand the, the gentle flow of living water. Verse 9, Isaiah says, associate yourselves, O ye people. In other words, fine, go ahead and create this alliance with the Israelites and the Syrians if you want to. Associate yourselves. And guess what will happen? Ye shall be broken in pieces. There's some fun play on words there. Associate yourself is coming together. But if you do it in the wrong way, then you're going to be broken in pieces. Your 
unlawful gathering will lead to your own scattering. Okay, don't trust in the arm of flesh. He says, give ear all ye of far countries, gird yourselves, and ye shall be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, ye shall be broken in pieces, just in case you missed me saying it the first time. Take counsel together, it shall come to naught. Speak the word, it shall not stand. For God is with us. Ooh, there's the Emmanuel. Trust in him, not in some worldly king or alliance of earthly kingdoms. For the Lord spake thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, Say ye not a confederacy to all to whom the people shall say a confederacy. Neither fear ye their fear, nor be afraid. You understand what he just said? Why would you need a mortal alliance when you're already in a covenant relationship with the God of Israel? Look at his arm. <laughs> and that's something to trust in. Not the puny arm of flesh all around you. Remember back in Samuel's day when they wanted so desperately to fit in and to have a king like all the other nations? Well, now that's coming back to bite them because their kings can't hold a candle to the king of kings that they could have been following this whole time. So, verse 13, Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he shall be for a sanctuary. Remember we already saw the tabernacle? The covert from storm and from rain? The place of refuge? The place of defense? That's God. He shall be for a sanctuary. But, on the other hand, for a stone of stumbling and for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel? For a gin and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem? So it's not just the Israelites up north, it's the Judahites down south. I mean, think about that. Will God be a rock to hide you or a rock to crush you? Which side of the stone are you on? It's rolling forth to fill the earth. Are you behind it, moving it forward? Or are you in front of it, ready to be plowed down? You see what the way Isaiah says it. Many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. That's exactly what happened when Assyria came. It's exactly what happened when Babylon came, exactly what happened when Rome came. This is layer after layer. And so what's Isaiah going to do? Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. Remember what we talked about earlier? Like, you've got to say it. You've got to put it down on paper because it's going to tick off your people, but it's going to save a later generation. Once this group wander, wander, die, wander, die, your words will be what redeems and gathers people later on. But it, your words have to outlive you then. So write it down, but then bind up the testimony. Seal up the law. Put it on plates of gold and then bury it in the hill Cumorah. This stuff has to outlive the generation of people that will not listen to it. These words have to come to a righteous remnant. It's those words that will let them know what the righteous remnant's role is. So bind up the testimony, seal up the law, and I will wait upon the Lord that hideth his face from the house of Jacob, and I will look for him. 
You see, it only seems like God is hiding. We're the ones that went away. He's always been there. And he's just biding his time, waiting for the right moment. For this voice from the dust to begin hissing again, whistling. This fallen standard to be raised like an ensign on the mountains. So that a later remnant will be reminded of who they really are and what they've been called by God to do. We're going to gather Israel. We're going to flow up upstream, uphill to the mountain of the Lord. We're going to usher people into God's presence where the seraphim dwell. We'll pray our way in. Do you understand? There's something powerful about this this part that Isaiah is playing and the part his words are playing. No wonder the Book of Mormon has Isaiah like a golden thread running throughout the whole thing. Because this book is supposed to be the instrument of the gathering. This is the broom that is sweeping the earth. This is the flood. Forget the flood of the Assyrians. Flood the earth with the Book of Mormon and gather out mine elect. That's its promise from the start. So, verse 18, back to you, Isaiah. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts, which dwelleth in Mount Zion. That's why I had to give you guys such strange names, kids. Sorry, not sorry about that. The the people had to know that destruction was imminent. Right, Mahar, Shalal, Hashbaz? They had to know that a remnant shall return. Right, Sheher Yashub? All because God is with us, Emmanuel, and because salvation is of the Lord. That's what Isaiah means. Yeshiyahu. Salvation is of the Lord. He, he embodies it, as do his sons. And when they shall say unto you, Seek unto them that have familiar spirits, and unto wizards that peep and mutter. What? what? They're going to say that? Yep, sadly. Can you believe that, sons? Can you believe that, kids? That the day will come, instead of turning back to God, they'll go seek familiar spirits. This is like King Saul, who knew he was unworthy, so he goes and seeks the witch of Endor. This is like Ahab and Jezebel, who are on the wrong side of things, turning to the priests of Baal and Asherah. A peeping wizard? Really? That's who you're turning to when you could have had prophets of the living God? Well, you saw what they did to Isaiah. Keep reading. Should not a people speak unto their God for the living to hear from the dead? Well, there's an interesting rhetorical question. Of course. So what's Isaiah leave us with? To the law and to the testimony. Those things that I'm binding up and leaving for a later generation. That's where you'll have to turn. That will, that's what will wake up the world and let you know who you are and what you must do. On the other hand, if they speak not according to this word, well, it is because there is no light in them. And speaking of no light, look at 21 and 22. They shall pass through it hardly bestead and hungry, or weary and hungry, or distressed and hungry, as other translations give it. It shall come to pass that when they shall be hungry, they shall fret themselves and curse their king and their God and look upward, kind of shaking their fist heavenward, wondering where the blessings are. Why have we been forsaken? Why have we been forgotten? No king to help us, no one with clothes to wear or bread to give. 
No God on his throne. Ah, it's all you. You've abandoned him. And so, the end. They shall look unto the earth. Since they looked upward and couldn't see God. They look now to the earth and behold trouble. That'll be all too obvious around them. What else will they see? Darkness. Dimness of anguish. They shall be driven to darkness. Again, as we've already seen from later chapters of Isaiah, already quoted in the Book of Mormon, all we've got are sparks. That's all we can muster. Little watch light. When we could have been illuminated by the light of the world. Well, as you sit there, lamenting, in the darkness, the only things you can make out in the shadows are the troubles that await you from every side. Well, go to the next chapter. Second so Nephi 19, a.k.a. Isaiah 9. Speaking of darkness, nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation. When at first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict by the way of the Red Sea beyond Jordan and Galilee of the nations. That was a mouthful. A quick history review. Previous incursions can't hold a candle to the Assyrian onslaught. I mean, you've had some rough times before with local kingdoms and some fighting between brothers in north and south and so on. That was just dimness, but that was light affliction. I mean, they started coming down from the north and they'd pick off the tribe of Zebulun way up top. They'd pick off the tribe of Naphtali as they got closer to the Sea of Galilee. But man, that's nothing. When the Assyrians come, we're talking grievously afflicted. They're going to go all the way down the Red Sea, beyond Jordan. They're going to come and it's going to destroy us. And as a result of that intensifying darkness, man, it's going to take a far more illuminating light to overcome it. But guess what? That's on its way as well. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Thou hast multiplied the nation and increased the joy. They joy before thee according to the joy in harvest. And as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. You see, that's the good news. Jerusalem will be delivered. God will deliver his covenant people. There will be a righteous remnant because light will shine. Matthew pulls out this verse as well, picks it up when he's talking about Jesus as he's ministering around the Galilee, around the tribal inheritances of Zebulun and Naphtali and thinking, ah, there's the light shining. Oh, it was dark days when King Ahaz was worried about Syria and Israel. It was darker days when Hezekiah was worried about Assyria. Is it even darker days now that it's the Roman legions that are bearing down on us? Well, if so, thank heaven for sending the light of the world. As we are going through the valley of the shadow of death, Light is shining, and me and my fellow apostles and disciples are rejoicing in him as if it was the joy of harvest. We're not going to go hungry this winter. The joy of spoil of war. We won. We didn't lose. You see why Matthew would be drawn to that verse? You see why Isaiah would want his people to be drawn to that verse? 
Well, how's it going to happen? Notice verse 4. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden, and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. There's another triplet. The yoke, the staff, the rod. But those are all unwanted ones. It's this heavy yoke that our enemies are putting upon us. This strong staff that's kind of smacking us left and right. It's this rod of oppression that's weighing us down. But can you imagine replacing that with the Lord's yoke, which Jesus said is easy, his burden is light? Or replacing it with the Lord's staff, since he's the good shepherd? Or replacing it with the Lord's rod, which is an iron one, but leads us to the fruit of the tree of life? Oh, that's the yoke and staff and rod that I want. And it can come if we have faith. For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood. That's the kind of war we're used to. But this, this war, the one where we're not fighting against oh, armies and principalities and powers, the one where we're fighting against the powers of darkness in, in high places, like, like Paul says, this one, shall be with burning and fuel of fire. So a cleansing fire, a purifying war, winnowing out the wicked, purifying the righteous, leaving a remnant worthy to return. And then such a famous passage. Hopefully it means more to us now in context. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Oh, that's a masterpiece in Handel's Messiah. And that is how the war will ultimately be won. With the coming of the Messiah, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, Prince of Peace? No wonder there's no more war. No wonder swords can be beaten into plows and spears can become pruning hooks. No wonder no one's learning war anymore. No reason for West Point. It's, it's millennial reign. It's Prince of Peace. Now again, that's good news for us as we wait and hopefully prepare for that day. What does that mean for Nephi and Jacob? What, is it, what does it mean for their audience? Is he wrestling with the promise of the Messiah who will redeem us from sin and death? The promise of a Messiah who will come to gather scattered Israel home? To take the cut off branches and regraft them into the stump that still has life in it? Or go back even earlier. We're going down the, 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 the layers of this cake and come back to Isaiah's immediate audience. He talked about a son being born of this virgin. And it's his wife and a child. And it's bad news because destruction is imminent, but good news because the remnant will return. And it's going to be better before you know it, King Ahaz. I just wonder if you'll be around to see it or maybe a different son. A different prince who's actually more focused on peace than you are. Uh, someone who's a little more open to wonderful counsel and is able to give some wonderful counsel of his own. 
Because in Isaiah's immediate context, this sounds a lot like King Hezekiah. Ahaz's son, who was so much more faithful and valiant than his father, who trusted in the gentle waters of Shiloh and made sure that they could come into the city where the people could drink. The one who would fortify the walls, but the one who would also trust more fully in Isaiah when the Assyrians were bearing down upon them. That's a story that Nephi doesn't tell. That's later on in Isaiah. That one, you got to go back to our Old Testament study, and it's miraculous what God does with the Assyrian Empire. Thanks to the faithfulness of Isaiah and Hezekiah, who was, a, who was an incredible prince of peace. Okay? He got some wonderful counsel from Isaiah, right? You understand the, the, the different layers here? I want to honor what's going on in Isaiah's day, but I don't want to limit it to that. In fact, I don't want to limit it to, to either time period. I don't want to say it's only immediate context and everyone else is making this stuff up. But I also don't want to say it's only Jesus and it has nothing to do with what's going on in Isaiah's day. It, we need an, a both and on this one. Okay, and the various layers of the layer cake. It's amazing how much mileage God can get out of Isaiah's metaphors. With me? If so, then we can understand the good news in every age. That God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, can provide means of escape from whatever enemy we might be facing. Ah, these, these, these are, this is good news for them and for us, and for the Nephites, and everyone in between. If we'll just come to this son, this child, this everlasting father. And if that's good news, it gets even better. Look at verse 7. Of the increase of government and peace, there is no end. Upon the throne of David, and upon his kingdom to order it, and to establish it with judgment and with justice, from henceforth even forever the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. How's that for true eternal joy? No more worrying about the next world superpower marching in. Oh no, the, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's Handel's Messiah too. Well, verse 8, The Lord sent his word unto Jacob, and it hath lighted upon Israel. And all the people shall know, even Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, that say in the pride and stoutness of heart, the bricks are fallen down. Fine. But we will build with hewn stones. Let me say that again. The sycamores are cut down. Eh, who cares? But we will change them into cedars. Now, this is prideful obstinance. This is the counterfeit of beauty coming from ashes. Because they're left with ashes, but they're so determined, kind of in God's face, that nope, you can't reduce us to anything. We'll just come back stronger than ever. Fine, you cut us down. I was just a sycamore tree. <laughs> and I'll come back like a cedar. How's that? You toppled our towers. Big deal. They were only made of bricks to begin with. Next time I come at you, I'll come at you with hewn stones. This is like people building the Tower of Babel to escape a further flood. Yeah, try to punish us next time, God. Oh, there's, there's pride. 
there's obstinance. There's a hard heart instead of a broken one. Which, as God told Isaiah, that's exactly what's going to happen. You're going to end up hardening their hearts further. You're going to make their ears closed and their eyes shut and their hearts hard and do it nonetheless. Because your real audience, your intended audience, is not the multitudes around you. It's just a righteous remnant. And really who you're speaking to is a future audience that once you've bound up the, the law and sealed up the testimony, it will go to them in a later, latter day. And they'll change everything. In the meantime, verse 11, the Lord shall set up the adversaries of Rezin against him and join his enemies together. The Syrians before, the Philistines behind, they shall devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. For the people turneth not unto him that smiteth them, neither do they seek the Lord of hosts. Now we've got to be careful with that phrase, his hand is stretched out still. Because a lot of people read that and interpret it as good news. That despite everything you've been through, hey, God's still reaching the hand of mercy out, and you can grab a hold of it. Now, I agree with that. That is true. But that's not what Isaiah is saying in his immediate context. As we saw right after, his hand is stretched out still. Well, what's he going to do with it? He's going to smite you again because you're not turning to the one who's smitten you. You're not seeking him. So if this isn't enough, I do have hmm, additional ammunition. You see, it's like this, that you keep hitting the snooze bar. Well, will the alarm clock get louder and louder and louder? And if a, a little bit of dimness doesn't wake you up to want the light, then we're going to have to go with greater darkness than before. If being smacked around by the Israelites or the Syrians wasn't enough, then yeah, the Assyrians will have to come later on. And the Babylonians and the Romans and so on. So, my hand is still stretched out, and it's the hand of justice that can intensify if it needs to. Now, I don't want to make one at the exclusion of the other, because God does have two hands, after all. And he's a perfect prover of contraries. God is perfectly just, so that hand is stretched out still if we're still not ready to change. But God is perfectly merciful. And that hand is stretched out still as well. It's simply a matter of which hand we choose to hold. So choose wisely. He says similar things in verse 14 through 17. Therefore will the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, branch and rush in one day. And remember, being cut off, there's spiritual death. There's being cut off from God. There's the only curse that ever matters. And who's going to suffer it? The ancient, he's the head. The prophet that teacheth lies, he's the tail. For the leaders of this people cause them to err. And they that are led of them are destroyed. Therefore the Lord shall have no joy in their young men, neither shall have mercy on their fatherless and widows. For every one of them is a hypocrite and an evildoer, and every mouth speaketh folly. For all this his anger is not turned away but his hand is stretched out still. What we're starting to see are, is this crescendo of consequence. And it was bad enough what we read back in verse 11 and 12 and 13. 
Now it's worse in 14, 15, 16, 17, because his hand is still stretched out. Is that still not enough? Believe me, this hurts me more than it hurts you. But what's it going to take to wake you up to the consequences of your sins? Do you have to be completely annihilated? Do you have to hit rock bottom before you recognize the rock? My wife wrestles that with that with the patients she works with in addiction recovery all the time. Has it gotten bad enough that they're ready to change? Are they sick of their addiction to the point that they're seeking recovery? Because if not, it's only going to get worse before it gets better. And that's what the Lord is, is warning them about. There are still worse consequences to come. That's the hand of justice still stretched out. There are still worse things waiting in the wings, but you can change at any moment. Just choose to. He says in verse 18 and 19, For wickedness burneth as the fire. It shall devour the briars and thorns. It shall kindle in the thickets of the forests. And they shall mount up like the lifting up of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts is the land darkened, and the people shall be as the fuel of the fire. No man shall spare his brother. A complete loss of brotherly love. In our day, we speak of hyper-individualism, where there no, seems to be no common social thread, no common sense of care for one another. I'm grateful that so many people are pushing back against that and creating opportunities to become one, to reach across aisles, to care for our brothers and sisters because we know we're our brother's keepers. Otherwise, we're left to become Cain's against Abel's. And we know how that turns out. So Isaiah ends, and this lesson ends this week though the chapter that Nephi gives us has not come to an end yet. We're going to have to kind of hold our breath for the next seven days until next week comes back to teach us chapter 20 and 21 and 22 and 3 and 4 and so on. But hold out for that. Here, he shall snatch on the right hand and be hungry. These are those people that are being swallowed up by the smoke and devoured in the fire. They're just every man for himself. This is a dog-eat-dog -dog world, and I'm just trying to feed myself, so I'm snatching on the right hand, but still, I'm hungry. He shall eat on the left hand, and they shall not be satisfied. They shall eat every man, the flesh of his own arm. Now, this is worse than dog-eat-dog. -dog. This is dog-eat-himself, and never be satisfied. Talk about an insatiable appetite of preying upon others. You end up becoming worse than cannibalistic, yourself devouring, yourself defeating, until when all is said and done, it's Manasseh, Ephraim, and Ephraim, Manasseh. Other translations insert a clarifying word there. It's Manasseh against Ephraim, and Ephraim against Manasseh, and they together shall be against Judah. And yet, for all this, his anger is not turned away but his hand is stretched out still. <sighs> what will it take to wake us up? What will we have to endure before we change? Like I said before, God has two hands and they're both outstretched. And we can grasp the hand of mercy at any time. It just takes a soft heart. It will be grasped by righteous remnants.
who will live long enough to hear the words of Isaiah speak words of reassurance, not just to them, but to the world to whom they will deliver that message. They will have seen the, the ensign and heard the hiss and come running to be the Lord's army. And not a destroying one this time, but a redeeming one. That's the hope for us all. And that's the role that God wants us to play. Now, to review all of this, in a nutshell, with, with beautiful one-liners from 2 Nephi 11 through 19, here's a list worth wrestling with. My soul delighteth in his words, proving unto my people the truth of the coming of Christ. All things are the typifying of him. My soul delighteth in the covenants of the Lord. My soul delighteth in his grace and in his justice and power and mercy. The great and eternal plan of deliverance from death. Lift up their hearts and rejoice for all men. All nations shall flow unto it. Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Neither shall they learn war anymore. The Lord alone shall be exalted in that day, whose breath is in his nostrils. Thou hast clothing, be thou our ruler. The show of their countenance doth witness against them. Burning instead of beauty. Written among the living in Jerusalem. Washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion. A cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. A place of refuge and a covert from storm and from rain. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. Judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. He looked for judgment and behold oppression for righteousness, but behold, a cry. My people are gone into captivity because they have no knowledge. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. An ensign to the nations. None shall slumber nor sleep. And all their bows bent. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Thine iniquity is taken away and thy sin purged. Here am I, send me. Take heed and be quiet. Fear not, neither be faint-hearted. A virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The waters of Shiloah that go softly Neither fear ye their fear, nor be afraid. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Should not a people seek unto their God for the living to hear from the dead? To the law and to the testimony. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given.
wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. His hand is stretched out still. Oh yes, still it is. In fact, both hands are, with a choice presented to each of us of which hand we'll hold. I am grateful for Isaiah's glorious message. I'm grateful for we're only halfway done with it. And that next week we'll have to pick up right where we left off until we get to Nephi's glorious explanation. I promise with his help, all of this will make much more sense. But I do hope it started to make sense as we've studied it. It's a glorious call and caution to us all as we get to decide whether we will succumb to the cares of the world and whatever wimples and crisping pins are being dangled out the windows of the great and spacious building, or whether we'll choose to flow uphill to the mountain of the Lord. It may look like quite the climb, but remember there's a draw that more than offsets the, the drag of gravity. So may we come, may we unfold the testimony, roll out the law, Understand Isaiah's call to us all, which is a call to come and come running. Have you heard the hiss? Can you see the ensign? And with hooves like flint and wheels like a whirlwind, can we come running? Not to join a marauding army, but rather a redeeming one. God wants us all to come home. He wants scattered Israel to know that a remnant was reserved so that we could come out and give them the glorious good news. But the God of Israel has not forgotten them. Now that he's preparing for them, waiting for them, inviting all of them to come home.